prophesying about 800 B.C. during the reigns of some famous kings that you know, some Judean kings, uh, names you're familiar with, King Uzziah, King Ahaz, King Hezekiah. God inspired the prophet Isaiah to warn about the end of a very special relationship. Now, he didn't use those exact terms. We know from Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, which I'll only reference, that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do my pleasure. Our God is sovereign, as we heard in the song. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9, a different passage in Isaiah. Again, recorded around 800 B.C. in that general time frame. And there's a specific prophecy that the church of God has long taught. No new information today, brethren, but very fundamental information. Very fundamental, very important. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 21, we have a prophecy that has not been fulfilled yet. Isaiah 9 verse 21, it's still yet future. Let's read the verse quickly as we begin the sermon today. We see here, I'm going to break into the prophecy, break into the thought. It's recorded that Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah for all this. So there's some sort of punishment, and Ephraim and Manasseh are going to turn on each other. They'll be against each other. They'll be against Judah. That's what this scripture says. And then God continues through Isaiah and says, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, implying and indicating that there's yet more to be fulfilled. Now, as we will see, Ephraim and Manasseh and Judah, as you know, did not stumble together historically. That's historically provable. We'll identify who Manasseh and Ephraim are. We will talk about the amazing promises and the fulfillment of those promises that God caused to be affected upon the descendants of Abraham and how, in a very real personal way, we're living in an age where, on one hand, we're experiencing the, the blessings of those promises, but on the other hand, we're headed toward another time of national punishment, as you all know. <clears throat> and we will also talk about our particular roles and what we can learn uh, from what God is doing and the prophecies that are unfold, unfolding uh, before our eyes, what we can do to have a closer relationship with God, with our sovereign God. Now, the United States and the United Kingdom, and we will identify and prove from Scripture uh, who these, these people are, but the United States and the United Kingdom still have a very strong relationship. But there have been a lot of comments in the news and in political circles lately, uh, during this presidency, this administration, also during the prior, uh, where there are questions about the 
special relationship, will it last? Will it stand? Is that special relationship as strong as it once was? Later in the sermon, we'll identify and I'll show you where that term special relationship came from. Uh, Some of you are probably familiar, but it was actually coined uh, not too long ago. But what is the significance of this prophecy, brethren? Who are the players? What did God fulfill and cause to come to pass in years prior? Uh, Where do we live in this prophetic timeline? Uh, What is going to happen in the future? When you watch the news, you can understand what's happening politically and geopolitically through the lens of Scripture. And you'll see that it does uh, really show God's, he is sovereign, he does cause his counsel to stand, and he does cause his will to come to pass. The title of the sermon today, it's a little bit of a lengthy title, but the title is The 2520-Year Prophecy and the Special Relationships. So the 2520, the 2520-Year Prophecy and the Special Relationships. In order to continue to set the stage and explain why this relationship is so important before we explore and prove who the players are and what God has been doing, I need to take us back in time, not too far into the recent past. I need to take us back in time to when many of your parents and grandparents uh, were alive and the world was on the edge of one of the worst Times that it ever experienced. And these were the events leading up to World War II. So I need to take you back to that time to talk about the special relationship, uh, why the powers, the allied powers, uh, were in the position they were in, and what was going on prophetically. And then we'll go back further in time and look at some scriptures and tie it all together. Now, World War I was a terrible time. World War II was as well. And a worse time. <clears throat> the Nazis invaded Poland September the 1st, 1939. September 1st, 1939. And this was the final straw for the British. Britain declared war on Germany September 3rd, 1939. The numbers are hard to process. I'm going to give you numbers. And they're hard to process. But I want you to personalize these numbers. They're not just numbers. These are people. And this is during the time of your parents and your grandparents. And this connects to the special relationship and what God caused to come to pass and what he's going to allow to come to pass in the future. Poland, during that initial invasion, just during September and October of 1939, would lose 70,000 people. 70,000 were killed. 133,000 were wounded. About 700,000 were taken prisoner just in September and October of 1939, at the beginning of World War II. Germany began dealing with what they called the Jewish question, and they developed ghettos in Poland, beginning September 1939. The first Poles were killed in the gas chambers, the carbon dioxide chambers, in November 1939. Zyklon B was used in Auschwitz-Birkenau, September 1941. 
not tasteful things to recount. Uh, events that are not being taught in today's grade schools and high schools as much anymore. Uh, people deny this happened. And Satan's behind those denials. The nation of France, very important player. We're going to talk about France during the sermon today. One of Abraham's descendants as well. The nation of France, but not all of, not all of its overseas territories, fell in May of 1940. France was a tremendous empire at that time, one of the largest armies in the world. Of course, this led up rapidly to Dunkirk. You're familiar with Dunkirk, the miracle of Dunkirk. Hollywood has done a terrible job. Uh, they've removed God from their recount of the Dunkirk story. I, I went and saw a couple of the movies, and I appreciated you know, what they, some of it, but they removed God from the, uh, what happened. The miracle of the calm seas is what it was called. This was in the newspapers. 193,000 British troops were evacuated from Dunkirk. 193,000 British. 145,000 French. About 338,000 men. British, French. Ephraim, Reuben. We'll talk about that uh, deeply in the sermon today. Uh, that was from May through about June 4th, 1940. It was at that time, June 4th, 1940, at the beginning of World War II, uh, just after the Dunkirk invasion, uh, sorry, evacuation had concluded, that Winston Churchill gave his famous speech in the House of Commons, and where he said that if Britain were to be invaded, he said he doubted they would be, but if they were invaded, they would carry on the struggle. And then he spoke of the new world coming to the rescue of the old. I don't know if Churchill fully understood Biblically, what he was talking about, what he was referring to, but through reading some of his writings, I think he had a hint. We'll return to World War II later. But as you all know, the United States did enter World War II. The Allies prevailed. Why? Why? Why were they allies in the first place? Why did they have such national power in the first place? Who are the allies in history and in prophecy? Very fundamental, brethren. Very fundamental. Very fundamental. So we're going to go through and explore some prophecies today that we need to understand and remind ourselves of. The church has talked about these for years, taught these for years. So who are Ephraim and Manasseh? Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Who are Ephraim and Manasseh? Genesis chapter 12. And as we explore this, we'll see that God does cause his plans, his counsel to come to pass. He is sovereign. He is the eternal one. <clears throat> we'll see he's working with a people. We'll understand why he's working with the people. We'll understand why those people are going to be corrected. We'll understand why they have uh, were blessed in the first place. We'll understand our part in that. It, it, it's, it's, it really um, should, if we have the right attitude about prophecy, it should make us fear in a proper way God's, God's power and his, the way he intimately works with, uh, with his people and the way he's intimately working with uh, the world today. So Genesis chapter 12, we have God promising Abraham a great reward for his obedience. Let's move quickly through 
some of these promises and covenants that God is making with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now, the eternal had said to Abram, this is when Abram was about 75 years old, and there's seven or eight promises listed in this passage right here. You can uh, review it later if you'd like and find those. Uh, find those. Uh, there's seven, and there's an eighth promise uh, after they arrive um, uh, in, in Sechem. But uh, we're going to just read the first couple verses in Genesis chapter 12, where God, the Lord speaks to Abram, the eternal. He says, get out of your country from your kindred, pack up your things, have faith in me. I'm going to send you off to a distant land, leave your father's house to a land that I will show you. Have faith, obey me, do what I ask you to do, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. There are so many promises, so many truths embedded just in these 10 or 15 words I read. And if God is real, and if the Bible is his word, these promises have come to pass, brethren, and God's still working with his people, and there's yet more uh, to come to pass. So he says he'll bless those who bless you, curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram departed as the eternal had spoken to him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So we see a, a, a command, we see obedience, and we see a promise, don't we? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, verse 4. So many uh, scriptures in, in, in Genesis that I could go to. We'll just uh, look at a few. Here Abraham promises, here God promises that Abraham would become a father of many nations and the father of many kings. Uh, Genesis chapter 17 and verse uh, verse four. Now here Abraham or Abram is 99, and we're going to come down into verses three, four, five. Abram falls on his face. So picking up uh, the account in Genesis 17, verse four. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, says the Lord, the Eternal, to to Abram, and I will make you the father of many nations. Here we have another promise. God cannot lie. God will bring this. God did bring this to pass. So the question then will be when and how and with who. So he says, you make Abram the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants, and so forth. Now, in Luke 4, 4, we hear Christ says, we're to live by every word of God, aren't we? This is, this is scripture. This is God breathed. This is God breathed. And so this is important. This is not fringy. This is fundamental. And it is sad. It is sad that so many people who used to understand the importance of this, uh, have become dis- uninterested, disinterested, and you'll you'll see why. You'll see why as we continue on. I'm not referring to you in this room or anybody I'm aware of in the living church of God, but many who used to be with us. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, verse 17. Another time where God records a, his promise to Abraham and his descendants. And here in Genesis 22, verse 17... Uh, he, he tells us that 
Abraham's descendants would spread around the earth. They'd possess the gates of their enemies, which uh, typically historically refers to the sea lanes. Historically, armies, commerce, the majority has gone over the oceans and through the seas and through pinch points, through sea lanes. It can also refer to land passes, but primarily it's sea lanes. So here, Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 Uh, In blessing, I will bless you. In multiplying, I will multiply you, or I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. We see that God promises he'll make Abraham's descendants great, a great multitude. Did God cause this to come to pass? Is this just poetry? Was this fulfilled with the small nation of Israel or the small nations of Israel and Judah thousands of years ago? Was this fulfilled? Yet that's what Protestant ministers who try to teach prophecy will, will tell you. Was this fulfilled then? No. No. So Genesis 22, verse 17, 18, they would possess strategic pinch points. They would be a multitude as the stars and so forth. Let's, let's move forward to Genesis chapter 48 and let's talk about Ephraim and Manasseh. Genesis chapter 48. <clears throat> what we've seen so far is that God made a covenant with Abraham because Abraham was obedient, not because Abraham or his descendants were a great people. We'll come back to that point later. You all understand that. God didn't call Abraham and his descendants because he was impressed with them. Wow, these guys are really smart. These guys are the great of the earth. That's not why he began working with Abraham and his descendants. It was because of Abraham's obedience, his faith. And so God made a covenant in that covenant, and that promise was passed down from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob. And here we're introduced to Ephraim and Manasseh. We read about Ephraim and Manasseh in Isaiah, at the beginning of the sermon. So here in Genesis 48, verse 8, we are introduced, well, we're not introduced for the first time, but we read about Ephraim and Manasseh, Genesis 48. Uh, Who are they? Well, short answer is they're the grandsons of Jacob. They're heirs to the birthright promise that Reuben lost. Let's read Genesis 48 and verses 8, 9, 10. So Israel saw Joseph's son. So Israel is Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, Israel. Same, you know, different name, same, same person. Israel saw Joseph's sons. Joseph is Israel's son. He sees his grandsons. And he says to them, he says to Joseph, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are, they are my sons whom God has given me in, in this place. And he said, please bring them to me. And we have a very important event here where the birthright blessings and promises are going to be passed down through Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh. They're not going to go through Reuben. They're not going to go through Zebulun or Gad or Judah They don't go through Esau. They don't go through, you know, Ishmael or Edom. And they're passed down in a specific way. And I know you're familiar with this. I know you know this. But let's review the story uh, quickly. Because it it matters. God fulfilled his promise in a real way. And we'll come back to recent history and see how he he indeed did. So Joseph says in verse 9, these are my, my, my sons. Verse 11, now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And we have this very um, just touching um, account here. But God guided it to be done in a very specific way. What's going to happen? 
11. Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth. A very solemn occasion showing uh, Joseph, showing Jacob respect. And Joseph took both Ephraim with his right hand. Now notice this. Joseph took both Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand. Joseph guided Ephraim toward Israel's left hand. I know this is fundamental. I know you know this. <clears throat> but let's just re- let's review it anyways, because we'll see it play out historically. And so he guided uh, Ephraim to Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand. And he brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger. Aha. Why did he do that? Israel put his right hand on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph. So first Jacob blesses Joseph. Why is this recorded? Because the covenant promise is going from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh. Not Abraham, Isaac, and through, you know, Jacob and then Reuben. Okay, not through Ishmael or someone else. It's very specific. And so he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them. So those those covenant promises are going to be passed down to, to them and through them, through their offspring. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, you know the rest of the story. When Joseph saw what his father did, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my my father. So Joseph wanted it done, you know, the other way. And uh, Jacob refused, verse 19, inspired, led by the eternal, who was working out his his covenant promise, who was, who, who was guiding these events. And he said, um, his father refused and said, I know my son, I know he shall also become a people uh, and he shall also become great. Speaking of Manasseh, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So we have these clues. And I, again, I know you're, you, you're aware of, of, of the identity of the offspring here. But we have these clues, and God would, would fulfill these promises in very specific ways. It was because of Abraham, it was because of God's promises to Abraham and his descendants that the United States and Britain became so great in the last couple of centuries. Not because the United States and Britain inherently are smarter or better. And we understand that as well. Let's talk about Reuben briefly because he's, he's an integral part of the story. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 48. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 46. And let's just briefly uh, introduce Reuben. Who was Reuben? Well, in short, Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. He was the uncle of Ephraim and Manasseh, Genesis 46 and verse 6. So they took their livestock and their goods, and this is when Jacob and his family goes into Egypt because of the famine. So Jacob takes uh, his family, their livestock and their goods, uh, that they'd acquired in Canaan. They go into Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants and so forth, and his sons and daughters. And then verse 9, these are the names of the children of Israel. 
Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. And here we have Reuben introduced in verse 8, the firstborn. Reuben, the firstborn. Typically, the firstborn would receive the primary blessing, but he didn't. Why did he not? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, verse 3. Now, the, the account is recorded elsewhere, but for sake of time, we don't need to go to it. But what I'd like to bring out in the sermon today very quickly is not just remind us that Reuben lost the firstborn blessing, but I would like to draw your attention to the fact that Reuben was still the firstborn and was still one of Abraham's uh, sons or, you know, grandsons, and he still did receive some blessings. And there still was promises to, to Reuben. And those relate to France. And you'll see that in, in, later in the sermon. So Genesis 49, verse uh, 2, 3, we see that uh, Jacob is preparing to die. And he um, wants his sons and everybody gathered to him. And he says in verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. And these are also national characteristics as the church has long, long talked. And we'll, we'll, I will give you some quotes uh, later regarding that. But Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Unstable, though. Reuben was unstable. Unstable is water. He will not excel because he went up to his father's bed. He defied, defiled his father's bed. But Reuben and, and Reuben's descendants would still have a, a significant uh, blessing, just not as much as Ephraim and Manasseh would, would receive. Now, as a historic point of fact, when did the Roman Empire collapse? When did the Roman Empire collapse? 476. This used to be, you know, again, grade school history. Um, so 476 is when the Roman Empire collapsed. If you look at Europe in the Dark Ages and thereafter, what you see are Frankish descendants of Reuben holding things together, having excellence, having excellence. You see, you see names like... Um, Charles Martel, Charles Martel in 732 defeated the Islamic armies who had conquered all of Spain. You see names like the uh, Morovian uh, warrior dynasty that ruled out of Paris, ruled out of Paris, resisted barbarian invasions in the 500s and 600s. Those were Frankish, Frankish people that ruled from Paris. Later, you see Charlemagne. Charlemagne, there's big debates. Was he German or was he uh, Frankish? Well, he was neither. He was a, pre he was a precursor uh, to the Germanic and the Frankish people, but <clears throat> he was a Frankish king. A lot of Reubenite blood, a lot of Reubenites uh, were excellent. Were, they had their little fiefdoms, little kingdoms uh, after the Roman Empire fell, but they never achieved worldwide great, great empires like Ephraim and Manasseh would. Again, why these blessings? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 26 before we move on. Why these blessings mentioned above? Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4. Here God will reaffirm his covenant with Isaac, the covenant he made with, um, with, his, his, with Isaac's father, Abraham. He'll reaffirm it with Isaac. But the question is why? Why these blessings? Why these promises? Genesis 26, verse 3, 4. So God um, records for us here, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. 
For to you and your descendants, he's speaking to Isaac, I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oaths which I swore to Abraham your father. So the eternal is uh, reassuring Isaac that everything would be okay, and, and he's going to work out uh, and fulfill those promises he made to Abraham. And he says in verse 4, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. We see that repeated there, that promise. And I will give to your descendants all these lands. And this was speaking here locally at that time. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, another promise there. This was not fulfilled fully back historically. Now, this is a dual prophecy. This is a dual promise. This does in part apply in a huge way to the Messiah, to Christ. But it also applies nationally. It also applies nationally that the nations that bless Jacob's descendants, God would bless. The nations that curse them, God would curse. And we've seen that played out. We'll see it play out again if I can pick up the pace and get to the rest of my sermon. So he says, I I will make you uh, multiply as the stars. Why? Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You know, brethren, statutes and laws and commandments includes the Sabbath and the holy days. Includes the Ten Commandments, living righteously. Abraham lived faithfully and righteously, and God blessed him massively because of his obedience and because of his faith. Before we move on to the rest of the sermon, let's remind ourselves quickly that God's not a respecter of persons. And we we understand that, but turn to Acts chapter 10. But I'd like to uh, use two scriptures to bring that out today that actually tie into the topic, tie into the theme Today, regarding what God is doing, uh, how he's fulfilling his covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. God is not a respecter of persons. The ultimate fulfillment of these promises, we understand, is spiritual, right? We understand that. The ultimate fulfillment of all these blessings will be in the kingdom. But Acts 10, verse 34 and 35, before we get too far into the sermon... Uh, Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Peter was a a very uh, bold, proud Israelite, and God helped him to understand that God is not a respecter of persons. God uh, did not choose Abraham or Israel because they were great. God did not choose you or me because we're great. God, uh, you know, the United States did not become great because we're just better people. We became great because the eternal has been working out his plan with his people and has been fulfilling the covenant that he made with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And so Peter says, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So we understand that black or white, Hispanic, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, Polish, whatever. If God calls you, if you fear him, then God will work with you and uh, his goal and your goal is to be in the kingdom and you'll be acceptable to him and accepted by him. Uh, Galatians chapter three is another passage we use often to remind ourselves that uh, God is not a respecter of persons. If he calls you, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, the 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 ultimate fulfillment of that promise, which will be ultimately in the kingdom in, in the millennium, in the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 26 and 27. Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You don't have to be a physical Israelite 
uh, for God to call you, to work with you, for you to be sanctified, for you to be made holy, for you to be eligible for the first resurrection. And frankly, to be eligible for all the fulfillment, the great fulfillment of the of the promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants, that, that they would have an intimate relationship with him forever and ever and ever and ever into eternity. And we'll get to that later. Uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And notice how Paul ties it back to Abraham and to the topic today. Paul says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are Abraham's descendants and you are heirs according to the promise, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, which would be in the family of God, the kingdom of God. So back to that uh, later. <clears throat> So now let's come back to history. Let's review what Mr. Armstrong taught, what Dr. Meredith has taught. Dr. Winnell has written on this. We've we've all taught this for many years. Uh, I learned this from the church. I learned this back at Ambassador College. Uh, This is is something we should all understand. We're going to talk about the 2,520 years punishment and the day for a year principle. And we're going to turn back to Leviticus 26, which is where we find a clue regarding the duration of time that God would withhold the fulfillment of the physical blessings upon Abraham's descendants, Ephraim and Manasseh. It was going to be withheld for a certain amount of time. Leviticus 26. And when you understand this, it it explains things in history It explains things that are going to happen in the future. And it really gives glory to God. Leviticus 26, verse 18. So we have here the the blessings and the cursings. We'll come back to that later. At the beginning of this chapter, if Israel obeyed God, God would bless them. And then it transitions around verse 14. If they don't obey, he will curse them. And we come down to... Uh, Leviticus uh, 26, verse uh, 18. We're going to read that specifically. If you, if Israel ceased you know, obeying God, if they were incorrigible, then we have this reference to seven times punishment, that they will be punished seven times more for their sins, and their, their, their power would be broken. Now, we need to define some terms quickly. We need to let the Bible uh, define these terms. So we're going to do that in just a moment, but it's For the sake of your notes, it's Leviticus 26, verse 18, where the 2,520-year prophecy is revealed. We're going to define the terms, and we're going to do the math, but let's now back up quickly, and let's just skim real quickly chapter 26. Very, very fast. At the beginning of chapter 26, God tells Israel what he wants them to do. Do not make idols. Do not make carved images. Do not bow down to carved... Do not worship as the pagans worship. For I am the eternal your God. Keep my Sabbaths reverence my sanctuary, walk in my statutes, keep my commandments and perform them. Be like your father Abraham. Be righteous, be faithful. And we don't have to go through Israel's history to know that they failed over and over and over, and God eventually punished them in a terrible way. They went into captivity. We're going to go through that very specifically in a moment. So down in verse 14, 15, God starts to warn them, but if you do not obey me, if you despise my statutes, verse 15, Break my covenant. You know, the nations today, the Israelite nations today despise God's law. And you know that. We know that. We see that. Despise it. 
They hate God's law. And Israel hated God's law back then. And God says, if you do that, you'll be defeated. You'll be defeated. You'll suffer. But if you keep doing it, and then he embeds this clue here, the seven times more, seven times more, you'll go into captivity. I will punish you. You will go. You become slaves. You'll be led away with fish hooks in your mouth, as it says elsewhere. And that happened to their kings and their leaders and their rulers. A horrible punishment. He withheld those blessings. Now, how do we identify Leviticus 26, verse 18, as a seven times and a 2,520 years? Well, United States and Britain and Prophecy, page 17. It's a good place to go. Mr. O'Gwen <clears throat> writes there the following. Look at another. Uh, well, actually, here Mr. O'Gwen is going to, to introduce the, uh, the day for a year principle. Uh, so let me, let me quote from uh, chapter uh, sorry, page 17. Look at another incident of punishment in Israel. Mr. O'Gwen writes, Numbers 13 and 14 give the account of Moses sending 12 spies, one from each tribe, to investigate the promised land. Ten of the spies brought back an evil report that discouraged the people and caused them to refuse to enter the land. God was greatly displeased with the people's lack of faith. Notice the consequences that followed. And then here, Mr. O'Gwen will quote Numbers 1434. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for each day, you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years. And you shall know my rejection, my breach of promise. This is one of the scriptures you can turn to to see the day for a year principle. We also know that the term time can refer to a year. We know that biblically, don't don't we? We won't turn to it. But when Nebuchadnezzar dreamt his dream, he would be punished. What did he dream? In Daniel chapter 4, he dreamt he would be punished seven for his pride seven times. Remember? Remember seven times. So time can reference a year. Day can reference a year. In Revelation 12, I don't have time to turn to it. Revelation 12, verses 6 and 14. We should know this. Here we have the time, times, and half a time. And it's said that it's recorded that that is 1260 days. We should know this. Revelation 12, 6 and 14. The 1260 days are equated to a time, times, which would be two times, and half a time. That's three and a half years of 30 day months. Three and a half years of 30 day months. Let's turn to one of the scriptures. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, verse 2. Here we will have 42 months equated with 1260 days. Showing that biblically God equates a prophetic month as being 30 days. A prophetic month is 30 days biblically. Again, refer to Revelation 12, 6 and 14. We're now turning to Revelation 11. Uh, we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. So we're letting the Bible define its own language. Revelation 11, verses 2 and 3. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is beside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city for 42 months. So here we have 42 months. We have... The time, time, and half a time from Revelation 12, 
6 and uh, Revelation 12, verses 6 and 14. We have now in verse 3, just the next verse, that he, uh, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So over and over we see that a day can be a year, that a month is prophetically 30 days. We see that a time can be a year. We see God uses these terms interchangeably when he's speaking of prophecy very often. So with all of that, when did the punishment begin? That was recounted in Leviticus 26, verse 18. When did Israel go into captivity? 721 B.C. That's historically provable. Let's turn back to Leviticus 26, verse 24 quickly. Leviticus 26, verse 24. And if you're, most of you have this marked up in your Bible, and I I do know that, but a lot of people may not. Leviticus 26, verse 24. I'm sorry, I'm saying verse 24. Leviticus 26, verse 18. Leviticus 26, verse 18, after this, if uh, you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, break the pride of your power. Verse 24, then there's a repetition of this. Then I uh, will also walk contrary to you. I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. So what you do, brethren, as we've taught, is you understand that Israel went into captivity in 721 B.C. We've seen that seven times can mean seven prophetic years. Years of 360 days. We saw that in prophetic speak, prophetic language, a day prophetically is, uh, sorry, a month uh, is 30 days. So you have seven times seven years. Okay, how many days would be in a year if they're 30-day months? 360. Seven times 360. When you multiply seven times 360, you get 2520. If Israel went into captivity in 721... You factor in year zero. Uh, If the birthright promises were withheld from Ephraim and Manasseh, beginning in 721, and then they would begin to be released and fulfilled uh, 2,520 years later, you arrive at about 1,800, and that's when you have Ephraim and Manasseh start to explode on the world scene. Dr. Meredith wrote about this uh, in a Tomorrow's World article, a vital key to end-time prophecy. He said the following, Beginning from 721, when Israel went into captivity, this seven times extension of its punishment would run 2,520 years until 1800, when indeed the U.S. and the British Empire began their rise, their rapid rise to world dominance. God fulfilled his promise to bless Israel. He also delayed it according to his promised punishment. That's why Jacob's descendants began to become powerful and blessed around 1800. Now, I want to come back to some history again and talk about the British and American empires and the uh, French empire before World War II. I won't elaborate, on, elaborate a lot, but brethren, the British empire, God did fulfill his, his physical, the, the promise he made uh, to Abraham through, through Ephraim. The British empire was huge. It was the largest empire by land mass that the earth had ever seen. It covered more than 20 million square miles. You cannot explain this as as if it was an accident. It covered about one quarter of the Earth's total land area. 
It was the largest empire by, by population. It had the second largest economy, second only to the United States at that time. It had the largest military in history at that time. It ruled from Canada to Egypt, from India to Australia. How do you explain this? This little nation on this little island. It ruled from South Africa to Iraq, from Hong Kong to the Falkland Islands. The French Empire was also pretty large at that time. It was called the French Colonial Empire. It began with the conquest of Algiers in 1830, and it included many lands as well. I won't uh, go through it all, but lands in the Middle East and Africa and so forth. Why did the British and the Americans, why did they eclipse the French? Mr. Apartian longtime evangelist in God's church. He wrote a book back in 1961. It was published titled The French Speaking Peoples in Prophecy. And I came across this back at Ambassador College, and uh, it's an interesting book, uh, The French Speaking Peoples in Prophecy. And on page 59, here's how he explained it regarding the French Empire and the French people as relates to the, the British and the Americans. He said the following, quote, However, at the beginning of the 19th century, with the end of the period of national banishment, the 2,520 years we talked about, most of the Israelite nations, notably Great Britain and the United States, descended from Ephraim and Manasseh, began to enter into the possessions of what had been promised to Abraham for the Israelites as a nation. Not only did they overtake France, but they surpassed it in almost every area. Reuben would be blessed, but not as much as Ephraim and Manasseh. I want to come back to World War II quickly. And then don't worry, a lot of scriptures here in the final part of the sermon. I want to come back to World War II and the special relationship. As mentioned earlier, brethren, the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939. The Dunkirk invasion was May and June of 1940. By the summer of 1940, around 8 million French, Dutch, and Belgians were refugees. 8 million. By the end of 1941, about 403,000 British civilians had been killed through German bombing raids. A lot of times people don't remember that. Now, the goal is not to draw our attention to World War II. The goal is to understand who these people were, these nations, what's going to happen in the near future, and what we can do about it and what our nation should do about it. The first British air raid over a concentrated civilian population was December 16, 1940, over Mannheim, Germany. In 1941, the Germans starved 2 million Soviet prisoners, mostly Jews. World War II was a terrible, terrible time. The numbers are hard to, to process. 2 million Soviet prisoners, mostly Jews, starved in 1941 alone. Another 2 million Russian and Ukrainian Jews murdered by what was called the Holocaust of Bullets between 1941 and 1944. One of the revivals of the beast was in power, brethren. And there was a special relationship, and there were two great nations that were great because God fulfilled his promised blessings to Ephraim and Manasseh. And they would, they would have a special relationship, and they would intervene, and they would do something not too many years ago. The question is, what will happen in the years to come. What will happen in the years to come? More than a million civilians died during the Nazi siege of Leningrad alone 
880-day siege of Leningrad, a million civilians died. Two million died during the Battle of Stalingrad in the winter of 1942. I'm not trying to depress us, brethren. But when Christ said that it will be the time of Jacob's trouble will be worse than anything ever before, it's going to be worse than this. May 30th, 1942, the Royal Air Force started dispatching 1,000 plane bomber raids over Germany, 1,000 planes. They would devastate cities, kill civilians. 40,000 civilians were killed in Hamburg alone during one of these raids. Allied bomber raids over Dresden killed 25,000 civilians. Hundreds of thousands of Germans were left homeless. Some estimate more than 600,000 German civilians died during World War II. Some estimate more than 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, plus another 6 million non-Jews. About 12 million were killed by some estimates in the Holocaust. This does not include the war in the Pacific and the two atomic bombs that were dropped. It was then after the close of World War II that Winston Churchill gave another speech. This was March 5, 1946, and it was in Missouri. And here's what he said. He said, I have come to the crux of what I have traveled here to say. Neither the sure prevention of war nor the continuous rise of world organization will be gained without what I have called the fraternal association of the English-speaking peoples. This means a special relationship between the British Commonwealth and the United States. And we've had that, brethren. We've had that because we're brother nations and because God fulfilled his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph through and then Ephraim and Manasseh. But as we already reviewed in Isaiah 9:21, these nations will turn on each other in the years to come. Let's turn to another prophecy, Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. Hosea 5 verse 5. Hosea Joel Amos, Hosea 5, verse 5. This was written a short time before 720 B.C. God told the prophet Hosea to warn of an end time punishment on the house of Ephraim and Israel. Hosea 5, verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Notice the language, brethren. God is being very precise. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. This did not happen historically. Historically, Israel went captive 721 B.C. Judah went captive more than 100 years later. They did not stumble together historically. They will stumble together in the future. Please read Dr. Douglas Winnell's article on the website, Tomorrow's World. They stumble together. He goes into this prophecy in detail. Why will Israel and Judah stumble together? Punishment for sin. Punishment for sin. Let's please turn back to Leviticus 26. I know we're going back to Leviticus 26 a lot. Let's turn back there. Brethren, Israel, back in ancient times, in Old Testament times, turned away from God's law, his Sabbaths, and we've done it again. Not we, not you and me, but modern Israel. Is God sovereign? Did God withhold his promise for 2,520 years? Did God then fulfill it? Did the allies become great nations at God's appointed time? Brethren, God is going to rebuke Israel again. And that special relationship will not save us next time. It will not save us next time. 
It does not matter who's the president. It does not matter how much military we build up. Repentance, God's Sabbaths, God's holy days, stopping the abortions, stopping the drugs, stopping the homosexual agenda, those things, repentance of those sins, that is the only hope that the Israelitish people have. We're not great because we have any type of superiority. God blessed us because of our great, great ancestor, if you're Israelitish, his faith. And if you're in the church, he's your spiritual ancestor. Leviticus 26, do not make idols. But we'll see Christmas trees in many of the homes here in a couple of months, won't we? And you'll see Christmas trees in the White House. And we'll see Easter egg hunts. And we'll see Halloween. And we'll see all kinds of other abominations. Keep my Sabbaths. Keep my Sabbaths. God does not change, brethren. He wants Israel to obey him like Father Abraham obeyed. Israel's hard-headed. They were led off into captivity. They were massacred. It's going to happen again. That's why we preach the Ezekiel warning. Shame on us if we don't preach the Ezekiel warning. Our nations are headed towards doom and destruction. Repentance is the only way that they'll avoid it. And we know, sadly, that the nations are not going to fully repent. We hope God will call many more people into the church so they can have an opportunity to walk God's way of life. It's a blessing to be here on the Sabbath. It's a blessing to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a blessing not to lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, murder, because God's law is a hedge. It protects you. It gives us peace of mind. It gives us happiness. And also, by the way, it's required by God to be called one of his saints. Yes, Christ's sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, repentance of sins. We can't earn our way into the kingdom, but God's law is required. And we see here that they would not walk in his statutes. And so God um, took him, uh, threatened or told them that they would, he would take them into captivity. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, because it's interesting to me. Here you have the apostle Paul, um, a ex-Pharisee and a strong, devout Jew, strong Israelite, son of Abraham. And he's warning the church in Galatians chapter 5, And to me, it sounds a lot like what we didn't read in detail, but what we looked at in Leviticus 26. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. And this is about uh, us, you and me, uh, as well as, um, of course, what God wants from, from all people to turn away from sin. Galatians 5, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? I'm sorry, that was Galatians 3. Galatians 5, 19. Um, So now the works of the flesh are evident. Brethren, ancient Israel was guilty of the works of the flesh. God wants us to not fall into these sins, and I don't believe we are. These sins are what caused ancient Israel to go into captivity historically. These sins are rampant in the world today all around us. We live in a society that practices this filth. Do you want to suffer what ancient Israel suffered? We don't, I don't want to. I don't want my neighbors and friends to suffer it. This is why we take sin seriously. This is why we repent of sin. 
This is why we turn to God's law and we pray for each other and we pray to overcome sins if we are, are struggling with sins. The flesh, the, uh, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things which you wish. And this is talking about people that are struggling uh, with, um, you know, with sin that God's working with and they're struggling with sin. Let's drop down to verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication. These are things that ancient Israel was guilty of. These are things that the world is guilty of today. The United States and Britain and Australia, but all of around the world, uh, you know, all nations are guilty of this stuff. And these are sins. And we've got to come out of these sins. Fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, outbursts of wrath, the works of the flesh. These are sins. Modern America, modern Britain, the Western world, they are profaning God's Sabbath and they are turning to sin. What do you see in the media? What do you see in entertainment? You see sorcery, you see witchcraft. You see sex, you see adultery, you see taking God's name in vain. What do you see in the schools? What do you see in government? You see teaching against the godly family structure. Israel abhors God's laws. Verse 21, more of the works of the flesh, envying, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Brethren, we've been called out of this world. We've been called out of this world. We've been called to help preach the gospel, the good news of God's coming kingdom, the kingdom of God, of Christ's return, when peace and God's law will will encompass the earth, when righteousness will encompass the earth. When there will be no more murdering of babies in the womb. When there will be no more LGBT agenda. When there will be no more, you know, drugs running rampant. And and all of those sins that you see around us today. Brethren, that's why we take coming out of this world so seriously. Those sins are a stench to God. And those sins are a reason that ancient Israel went into captivity in the past. Their reason is we'll go into captivity in the future. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5 verse 4. Let's, let's, be, let's read verse 3 as well. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Oh, that ancient Israel had kept God's commandments. But we have an advantage they don't, they, most of them didn't have, don't we? Most of us, if we're baptized, we have God's Holy Spirit in us. For this is the love of God that we, that you, that me, that his people, that his nations would keep his commandments and know they are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God, whoever God has called, whoever is begotten of God, whoever is born of God, is the way it's phrased in the New King James, overcomes the world. Brethren, we've been called to overcome. 
not to practice what ancient Israel practiced, not to indulge in the entertainment that ancient Israel indulged in or the entertainment that promotes these sins, these evils. I understand how it is. I am very sure that none of you are running around practicing all these evils. But God says you can't approve of them either. God says don't watch them, don't look at them, don't enjoy them, don't pay $12 to go see them at the movies tonight. Overcome the world. Overcome the world. The United States and Britain are brother nations. In Revelation, we are told of the final revival of the beast power, a final time of punishment. Let's turn to Revelation 17 very quickly. Revelation 17, verse 12, one of a few scriptures we could turn to. Another time of war is coming. Another time of punishment for Israel is coming. And the special relationship will not save the allies the next time. Revelation 17, verse 12. We have the beast in verse 11, uh, the ten horns, which you saw are ten kings. This is yet future, who have received no kingdom yet, but they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They'll be of one mind. They'll give their authority, they'll give their power and authority to the beast. Brethren, there's yet a final revival of that beast system. A German-led European empire to punish Jacob one more time for Jacob's sins. Jeremiah chapter 30, familiar scripture to you. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Probably you don't have to turn to it because we know this. But this is where it's revealed that it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And this is yet to come. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Why will it come? Because of Israel's sins. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. Is a time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Ah, there's hope for Jacob. We saw in Hosea, we saw in Isaiah, that there's a coming time when Ephraim and Manasseh and Judah would stumble together. There's a coming time of national punishment that God will still deliver Jacob from in the future. Jesus Christ talked about this in the Olivet Prophecy. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 21. Another familiar passage before we jump back to uh, Isaiah. Matthew 24. Did Jesus Christ preach prophecy, brethren? Absolutely. Why? Why do we preach the good news of the coming kingdom of God and the Ezekiel warning? Because we've been commissioned to, we've been ordered to, we're hopefully Philadelphian Individually, we're hopefully Philadelphian. We're going through the open doors. We're trying to warn Jacob. We're trying to warn the world. We're preaching the gospel as a witness. God will call who and how many he wants. But we're going to continue to do the work. And Jesus Christ, here in Matthew 24, you're familiar with this. He's talking about the uh, great tribulation, the abomination of desolation, and flight to a place of protection in verses 19 and 20. Uh, verse 21, verse 21, we have uh, him tell us that this will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. 
brethren, what I read about the beginning and the statistics regarding World War II is not going to be anything to compare to how horrible the next and final revival of the beast will be. And it doesn't matter how good or bad the economy is, what weapons we build, God's law is Sabbath, repentance. That's why Israel went into captivity thousands of years ago. If they don't repent, they go into captivity again. That's why God tells us to come out. Revelation 18, 4, come out of her. Come out of her. Come out of that system. Let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. And let's continue on with the prophecy in Isaiah because there's good news. Good news follows the, uh, the warning and the sobering uh, proclamation. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, verse 21. That's that special relationship, brethren. The special relationship between those brother nations that were blessed because of Abraham's faith, Abraham's obedience, because God is sovereign, because God fulfilled his covenant, his promise to make them a great nation and great nations to be a blessing upon the earth. And so God says that at the time of the end, they'll turn on each other. We see that in verse 21. They'll fall together. That did not happen historically. Israel went into captivity 721 and historically Judah went into captivity more than 100 years later. But the story continues. Anciently, in the original manuscripts, there's no chapter breaks, as you know. So God continues on, and we come to to chapter 10. And God uh, says, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, and so forth and so forth, who rob the needy of justice. He's warning uh, the preachers and the leaders about uh, practicing and leading in a right way. Uh, He talks about robbing the fatherless. I I wish I had time for that, but I'll tell you what, one of the reasons that ancient Israel went into captivity was also being unfair to the weak and the fatherless, which occurs today in the United States, not as bad as some countries. Uh, But I've got to continue on here. God then identifies Assyria in verse 5, and he says, Woe to Assyria. So So the first part of chapter 10 We have the punishment upon Jacob. And then God shifts gears and he says, because the punishment is being given by Assyria, right? And then God says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly people, an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. Brethren, no parent likes to correct their children. But you correct your child because you have to. God does not take joy in the fact that the nations of modern Israel will go into the worst time of punishment that they've ever seen. Worse than the world has ever seen. He doesn't take joy in that. He sends them against who? What? Against an ungodly nation. Ungodly people. People who have kindled his wrath. And Assyria will punish Jacob one last time, one last time, and it will be devastating. But there's good news. There's good news. 
Jacob will be saved. Jacob will be restored. Drop down in the chapter to verse 20. Verse 20. And don't blame Assyria, by the way. They're the rod of, of God's wrath. They're the rod of God's punishment. Uh, when you get, you know, a spanking, you don't, don't blame the, the paddle. You're the one who broke the, you know, who did whatever was wrong and had to get punished. So we come down to verse 20. It shall come to pass in that day, after the punishment, after the punishment, after the time of Jacob's trouble, after the great tribulation, that the remnant of Israel and those who have escaped the, uh, of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them. But they will depend on the eternal. They will know the eternal. They will know God, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, they were, they were blessed, they were mighty. Their empires were huge. A few of them will survive. A few of them will return. Verse 22. And God's punishment will pass. And they will be redeemed. God will make an end to the punishment. They will not be, last, they will not be lost forever. This is when the fulfillment of all of those messianic prophecies that we're going to speak about and hear about during the feast will, will occur when the kingdom of God will be set up and established on the earth. I'd like to, in order to wrap up, I'd like to turn to a prophecy we don't go to as often that's messianic, that's hopeful. And I just find this one interesting, and I find it just... I think it tells you something. It just gives you insight. Let's turn to Luke. Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. From Genesis to Revelation, brethren, God has revealed that he's working out a plan of salvation, not just for Abraham and Abraham's descendants, but for all the nations, all the nations, all whom God calls. And I just think it gives us insight into how important that is to God, uh, to Christ, to the archangels, to the 24 elders. I just think it's interesting. Luke chapter 1. You know, there's punishment coming, but Israel will be restored. Some of them will come out physically. They'll live on into the millennium. If we've held faithful, we'll be changed. God's church will be changed at Christ's return. We'll come into God's family. But I find this very encouraging and very interesting. Luke chapter 1. We have in verse 26, Christ, your header may say, Christ's birth announced to Mary. Now in the sixth month, uh, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. From the line going back to David. And verse 28, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. 
But when she saw him, she was troubled at his, at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then, verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And notice how Christ is introduced to her. The role, the function, the promise, the hope. From Genesis to Revelation, brethren, it's about the hope and the promise and the faith that God's working out a plan that Christ is king of kings. He will return as Lord of lords. He will establish God's kingdom on the earth. And that's how he's introduced to her before he's even born by Gabriel, the angel. What does he say? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. And he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And when will that occur in fullness, brethren? In the millennium. When Abraham's descendants, the remnant comes out of the tribulation. When hopefully you and I have been changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and we're part of God's family. The fulfillment of this introduction of Christ who is not born yet to Mary and to us will occur then. That is the hope for the world, for Israel, for you and me. And so Gabriel continues and says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. It's that all would be called sons and of the seed of Abraham. All. Us in God's church today, spiritually, we are potentially the first fruits. We potentially have the opportunity to receive that reward uh, first. But eventually, as you know, uh, God will not stop at that. And that's what the great last great day talks about and so forth. And so he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Brethren, let's understand and appreciate prophecy, not to scare ourselves or scare somebody else, but to be thankful that God is sovereign, that he declares the end from the beginning. He causes his will to come to pass. Let's be thankful that we live at the time of the age when we do, after the blessings were poured out upon Ephraim and Manasseh, after being withheld for 2,520 years, let's be thankful for that special relationship that the Israelitish nations have had. But you know what, brethren? We're more thankful for the special relationship we have with God. We're more thankful for the special relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Let's uphold God's law. Let's come out of this world. And let's be worthy of that special relationship.